0: hello to our loyal listeners we are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the willamette week as the best podcast in portland it would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now and there's a link right there click on that you can go give us a vote we would be so appreciative thank you so much for your time
1: The following
2: episode contains descriptions of abuse, sexual assault, and homicidal violence. Listener discretion is advised.
1: King County detectives are now forming a task force to investigate the murders. They have no suspect, no motive, and very little evidence. Women are being killed. The issues aren't being addressed because the women are prostitutes. So once again, there is speculation that investigators are back to square one. I didn't think
3: they were doing enough i thought no if this was a policeman's daughter they would find somebody he doesn't remember faces or names in most cases there might be a couple of them the thing that he remembers is where he put them so he could go
4: back and have power and control one more time it hit me again just how many people this man had killed you know it was as if uh, he had committed an act of genocide you've made it difficult to live up to what i believe and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. And he doesn't say to forgive just certain people. He says to forgive all. So you are forgiven, sir. There are
2: nearly well, 20,000 murders annually in the United States. You Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest dreams, has become the notorious home of serial of killers deeds. and
0: bizarre crimes. You will We're here
2: to discuss the those murders, of your life. to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm
0: Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in the rain. Rain.
2: Hi guys, as usual, we're going to have our regular scheduled retelling of another weirdo murderer in the Pacific Northwest. But today we have two special guests, some real life professionals joining us after the case to discuss all things psycho. Dr. Bricado is a clinical psychologist who specializes in violence and psychosis, and his colleague Dr. Stone is a legendary forensic psychiatrist who has penned hundreds of articles on personality disorders and has personally interviewed dozens of murderers. So guys, stick around after today's famous case to meet the docs.
0: Most importantly, we know him from the TV. Davey! He's got his own show, Most Evil, on
2: Investigation Discovery. (music) In July 1982, two children riding their bikes near a local river outside Seattle made a terrifying discovery, the nude body of a 16-year-old runaway named Wendy Lee Caulfield. Wendy had been strangled with her own clothing and her body disposed of in the river. This is when the proverbial floodgates opened, and by August, four more bodies of young women were discovered in or around the same waters. That summer, it was clear that a new serial killer was stalking the Pacific Northwest, His modus operandi was to pick up a runaway or prostitute, lull them to trust him with images of his son, and once they were comfortable, he would rape and strangle them to death. Victims were often found in clusters, meaning if you found one, you were soon to find more. The first cluster was found dumped in a local river, giving the killer his notorious moniker. Today, we're discussing the Green River Killer, one of the most prolific serial killers in the United States. The vast majority of the Green River Killers' murders took place in surrounding areas of Seattle, Washington. Most bodies were dumped in remote wooded areas, and the bodies sometimes appeared posed in a tableau, and most often found nude. One witness who discovered two of the victims mentioned that he thought the bodies he saw weighted down in the water were mannequins. But we always know they're never mannequins.
0: He found them at the same time, right? Yeah. He didn't happen like
2: one week and then, uh uh-oh, guys, found another. No, he was on the river. I see. And he found two. As the first few bodies were found and the tension in the Seattle area was at an all-time high, a cabbie named Melvin Foster stepped forward to offer his assistance to police. You see, Melvin heard the names of the victims and claimed to know five of the women. As a taxi driver in the late hours of the night... He said he frequently interacted with these women and that he even offered them free rides, a space to warm up from the cold, meals, and even rent money from time to time. Police initially had a strong suspicion of Melvin. I have one. (laughs) He did fit their description of a killer. So he's a white guy. He's in his early 30s or early 40s. So he's like 30 to 40 range and he's definitely a loner. So they put round-the-clock surveillance on him right away and I think it lasted for a few months. Police were wrong, though. Melvin didn't do it. He was literally just an awkward kind of individual who made the mistake of offering his help.
0: A graveyard shift taxi. Wanted someone to talk to. You'll often,
2: you can go on YouTube and see a ton of interviews with him and the local news anchors. We know now they were wrong for a number of reasons. Firstly, the surveillance they had on him all the time. So cops are tracking his every move, but the murders continued. So it was clear he was not committing them. And while no one was sure who the killer was, there was a lot of evidence left behind. The evidence ranged from obscure paint chips on victims' bodies, hair and clothing, to semen and other DNA. Melvin offered his DNA swab, and the investigators tested it and ultimately ruled him out because there was no match. The deluge of body discoveries continued into 1983. Nine more deceased women were located— In 1984, the count increased drastically after another 13 more dead women were located. While victims still succumbed to strangulation, it seemed the killer graduated from manual strangulation to using ligatures. Most victims were now found in wooded areas rather than the early discoveries in the river. With this rapid increase in bodies, the King County Sheriff's Office formed the Green River Task Force, which included Robert Keppel and Dave Richard, who had ties to the Ted Bundy investigation. Investigators turned to new sources of information to try to help solve this case. Ted Bundy, one of the most recognizable serial killers of all time, played an interesting role in this case. Bundy, who was renowned for his interactions with investigators because he clearly loved attention, so the task force used that to their advantage to get the professional's take on the Green River Killer. And at
0: this time, he's on death row Right? Yeah, okay. so
2: he's regularly interacting with investigators. And so- it's
0: my understanding this is the inspiration for, um, or part of the inspiration for Silence of the Lambs, where it's
2: using the killer to help to catch a killer. solve another, mm-hmm. yeah. Bundy suggested to the investigators that they should stake out one of the sites that a recent dead body was located at. He thought that the killer would return to the site and that he was having sex with the dead victims. And this is something Ted Bundy was quite familiar with. So what we find out later is he was, in fact, right. The crime scenes proved to become confusing and misleading over time. There were items like chewing gum and cigarettes scattered around the sites, and these were coming from different DNA sources. This was identified as a specific choice to mislead the investigators. Kind of clever.
0: It really is. Because not only is it getting them off of your trail but then they're wasting their resources on all these other yeah i mean leads. you
2: think about when you know police come to a crime scene and they're like oh you can't step here or you're picking this yeah. up and they're contaminating their own crime scenes he's basically doing this before the police even get to it mm-hmm. and just making it so confusing that they take even longer to figure out something yeah so like i said earlier the manual strangulation moved to the use of ligatures and these range from fishing line, clothing and neckties, ropes and cords. And we're not sure if the the killer was doing that to just grab something nearby or if that was purposeful to also try to mislead the investigators. The bodies are often posed or mutilated, items left in orifices, and one victim even decapitated. <music> Carol Christensen, a victim discovered May in 1983, was posed in a sick tableau. Police found her body in a wooded area in Maple Valley, Washington. She had been strangled with fishing line and posed on her back with a paper sack over her head, a trout placed on her neck and shoulder, and a bottle of wine on her stomach. Next to her, a mound of sausage. Pretty weird, right? Wow. So there's speculation by some that this is supposed to represent a reference to the Last Supper. But a lot of people think, no, they were just doing something to mock the police.
0: Yeah. So my question is, and I don't know if you know the answer, was the only connecting part the location and that they were all strangled? Because it sounds like everyone kind of had a little bit of a different, all the victims had a little bit of a twist as far as like being in the water, being
2: out of the water, being well sort of mutilated. Being So not- overall, there's 49 confirmed victims. Wow. Only five of those were found in the Green River. So that was the very first cluster. Everything else from there is in the woods. Okay. But the crimes themselves are so similar, even though they were using different uh, ligatures, Mm. it's still very obviously the same person. Okay. Later in 1983, investigators had a suspect named Gary Ridgway. They were able to connect him with several of the victims. Ridgway had originally been arrested in 1982 for solicitation, but he was never a suspect at that time. The first connection was to Marie Melbar. She was missing and her family had noted that the last time she was seen, it was in a truck that looked very similar to Ridgeway's. Did they say what initially made him a suspect back when they first started looking at him? I think it was just that he had frequented a lot of the prostitutes in the area and they started recognizing him and talking about all the people that come by. And it's two of those women go missing, the ones I referenced Mm -hmm. there. He looks like one of them. His car looks like one of them. And they're starting to piece it together. So he ended up on the list that was probably fairly long. And you know, I never really found an article that specifically said how many Mm -hmm. people they were looking at. Really, it's just these two people were ever identified. Okay. And then why? Did it take that long? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there was two task forces. So originally in 1982 they had a task force. Okay. They had a really hard time finding anyone. After they saw that taxi driver wasn't the person of interest, they didn't have anyone. They were wasting millions of dollars, so they disbanded. Mm. Okay. Then as they get new bodies in uh, 1984, there's 13 or so. They get that task force back together. And start looking again. So it's just kind of interesting that it maybe slips through the cracks when different investigators come on. Which is on. bizarre
0: because if you have an actual task force assigned to one crime or one killer. And it was killer, lots of people. It's not just like five investigators. Right. And so you have this whole force. You would think that it's like, hey, we have DNA finally for this one case that requires an entire force of people. But we're just going to sit on it for
2: how many years It's totally so weird. And it makes you think... I think it was fourteen total till they get Jeez. they get him right. But let's think about it for a second. You have one or two main people of interest, and you can't run a DNA check really quick, right? When you have all this DNA, it's it's very interesting. I wonder if somebody uh, didn't get the memo, like they put it through and forgot to follow up, or
0: after they took his DNA and they have him as the suspect, how many women were found to be victims of him before? The DNA was run because if I'm a family member and I find out that they have a suspect and it matches, you know, a a description as a person and a vehicle and then we also have DNA but then we're sitting there and then I lose a family member in that time frame,
2: I'm really not going to be happy. The thing with Gary Ridgway is the majority of his victims happened between 1982 and 1984. Mm there are very few victims after that. Now they found, uh, I think 10 or so after his arrest, um, between, or actually since 1987. However, the bulk of that killing was all done early. Mm-hmm. So he, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but he had a marriage, uh, that was, he describes as quite happy. Mm-hmm. And during that time he didn't feel the urge to kill as often. Mm. So I, I don't think the the families are going to hold the people accountable for it. Right. It's still just a little weird to me that it would take that many years to run a DNA sample. Yeah. Particularly on a high-profile case, it's not just like one of the hundreds of rapes that are sitting right. in the back room. It took 14 years and many deaths, but Gary Ridgway was finally behind bars. To avoid the death penalty, Ridgway pled guilty to 48 counts of murder. And during that agreement, he decided he would tell investigators the story of what he did and also help them locate all of the victims. Uh, Right after he pled guilty to 48, they found one more victim and added a 49th sentence. Gary Leon Ridgway was born February 18, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the least favorite child of three sons born to Thomas and Mary Ridgway. There seems to be a norm in the serial killer world, and that is white men with major mommy issues, Mm -hmm. and that is definitely the case here. His home life was troubled, and relatives agree that Mary was really domineering, and there was often violent arguing between his parents. And at one point, the mother is described in a police report having broken a big plate over his father's head. Wow. Gary's father was a bus driver, and get this, part-time mortuary worker and he often complained about sex workers and he even told Gary stories about a co-worker at the mortuary that was a necrophiliac and that he uh, really took advantage of job perks. So Gary had uh, what we call you know tells for a serial killer. Uh, he was a bedwetter and he did that well into being 13 years old and he claims that his mother would kind of make a scene about it. She would get him up put him in front of his brothers and talk about it and she would refuse to let him take a shower and deal with it himself it's like she was washing him herself and oftentimes it was wearing uh, you know revealing clothing so Gary says that this made him confused he had angry feelings toward his mother but also sexual feelings Mm. and that caused a kind of a rage within him where he says he fantasized about killing her I mean ultimate Oedipus complex right yeah at age 16, now this is when we see these small signs kind of hint at a future career in doing something more. Um, he actually lured a six-year-old boy into the woods and he stabbed him through the ribs. And as the boy lies on the ground, you know, at the time he thinks he's dying, but he ends up surviving, thank God. But as he's dying, he says, why did you do that? Gary Ridgway kind of laughs, walks away and says, I always wanted to know what it was like to kill someone. And how old is he? 16.
0: And did anything come from that legal-wise? No, wise?
2: I think he maybe got a, a slap on the wrist of that. Is that the same? Slap on the wrist. Yeah.
0: So that probably also embedded in, in him this idea of- Power invincibility trip. Invincibility. Yeah. And look how,
2: I mean, that kid lived through it and I got away with it. Absolutely. Gary had two failed marriages. He married his first wife directly out of high school and went to the Navy, ultimately ending up in Vietnam during that marriage, both parties had kind of stepped out on each other. Gary was frequenting prostitutes in Vietnam, and his wife actually had an emotional affair, affair back here in the U.S. So this really infuriated him. Even though they were both doing you know, similar activities, mm-hmm. he automatically called her a whore, and he got very angry. And I think that's where we see his hatred of his mother kind of expanding into hating women in general. He also ended up with gonorrhea, from Vietnam again another reason to blame a sex worker Uh for something bad happening to him he eventually married a second time and with this wife he had a son and his son definitely became one of the most important people in his life but he also used his son as a pawn to manipulate the women that he would eventually murder and I talked about that in the introduction where he would often show a picture of his son to prostitutes and and cover his uh, address up with his thumb just so they would get uh, comfortable with him and get in the car and think, oh, he's a family man. We're just going to, you know, have a good time. I'm going to get paid and go on with my life. But in reality, he was doing that on purpose to make them more pliable and easier to murder. Mm. He even talks about he would leave toys in his car. He I think in one case, he actually had his son with him with a prostitute in the car So he was very comfortable doing this. Yet if you uh, go back and listen to the tapes, his son actually had no idea his dad was doing this. Wow. During his second marriage, his wife described him as really having an obscenely insatiable sex drive, often asking her to have sex with him seven to eight times a day. He would try to get her to have sex with him in public places a lot of times in the woods and these ended up being places where he was dumping bodies so there was definitely some overlap where he was likely having sex with his wife while a rotting corpse was nearby likely um helping him achieve his needs
0: right because he's also still going back to that same spot and committing necrophilia
2: he is yeah before bringing his wife very romantic guy. it really is so i uh, he ends up moving on and marrying a third wife which is described as a happy marriage he stops killing as much and in an interview with his third wife she makes a comment like i've saved lives you know our happiness and our marriage helped Gross. less mar- yeah it's just so disturbing so like talk about a couple of narcissists honestly. right honestly <laughs> sorry i'm such a hero i know so when you sit down and read this guy's life story you think I mean, I have to think his childhood really helped mold who he eventually ended up being. He's raping and murdering sex workers, returning to rape their corpses, often until their remains were too decomposed to even have sex with it.
0: Well, not to mention the PTSD of Vietnam itself. You're coming in already with a background of violence and sexual confusion and all of that, and then throw in the Vietnam War and PTSD and everything else and it's a recipe for disaster for sure
2: and it's interesting that people will sit down and talk to him As there you can go on youtube and find tons of videos of him being interviewed he talks about very minute details about his murders his mother just nonchalantly like yeah i used to watch my mom sun- sunbathe and think about having sex with her and i want her to teach me how to have sex yet he won't talk about vietnam so you gotta think hmm. maybe maybe it started there Maybe his actual first murder was there.
0: Yeah. Well, and it was a, per- again, so you have the kid in the woods that he, you know, got away with assaulting. And then you have, not only are you getting away with murder, you're being paid to go commit murder, but it's okay. You know, it's this yeah. war setting How do you separate and it's it? violent and aggressive and you're doing it to protect yourself. And it's like, while you're getting prostitutes,
2: it's like all the wires are crossed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Gary Ridgway has a tendency to be a narcissist in interviews. You can hear him explain that he was doing the police a favor. So it was his belief that the prostitution problem in Seattle was so out of control that the police could not handle it. So it was his duty to step in and take care of it. Yeah, that sounds like a narcissistic personality disorder. It is, right? But also, you think back to his childhood, his dad, the bus driver, was always going on and on about these sex workers. So it's almost like he's mirroring his father. Right, or like a hero to him. I don't really think we're ever going to know how many victims died at the hands of Gary Ridgway while he's incarcerated for the deaths of the 49 confirmed women. He claims he's killed an upwards of 71 And some people believe the number is closer to 100. And the reason being is there are a lot of missing prostitutes Mm -hmm. and runaways that fit the bill. But we just won't ever know because by now, if they were well hidden in the woods, it's very unlikely we're going to see some of these bones turn up. So many people were impacted by the selfish existence of Gary Ridgway. And I'd like to take a moment just to acknowledge the victims and their families Many of these ladies were kind of adrift in life and were never going to know how they could have truly contributed to the world because he erased them off the timeline. There was a local nonprofit um, and they worked tirelessly for a couple of years to try to get $250,000 to create a permanent memorial for the victims in Seattle. Yeah, unfortunately, they made about 12,000 and it ended. I couldn't, I tried, mm-hmm. kept trying to get to the website and it's just gone. So That's too bad. it makes me really sad uh, in that sense. But there, there is an artist I found online and this is really cool. So this artist's name is Phil Hansen and he created this artwork of a picture of Gary Ridgway. But if you look at it closely, it's just images of all the women he killed. Wow. So I have that up on the website with his website so you can go okay. look at it. Lucky for us, Gary Ridgway was caught, and he's spending his remaining years in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Also lucky for us, today we have some real professionals on the line with us, and I'm itching to find out what they have to say about this pile of human garbage. Absolutely. Welcome, doctors Gary Bricado and Michael Stone, to Murder in the Rain. We're very excited to have such royalty on the show. Yes. For listeners who might not know you, I'd love to take a moment to just brag a little bit and hopefully elevate the credentials of our podcast so we, we look legitimate. Um, so Dr. Bricado, you and I struck up a friendship on Instagram, uh, so sliding into DMs does work. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to to the topic we're talking about today.
4: You know, as you say, my name is Dr. Gary Bricado. I'm the the assistant director of the the Center for Prevention and Evaluation, which is a, a research clinic uh, at Columbia Medical Center at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, um, we do research there with young people who are experiencing uh, early signs of psychosis, and we're examining how that might be related to violence. Uh, we have a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health uh, to look at that over some years. And I also do evaluations within the college system here in New York City for people who have gotten into trouble for violence or other reasons which make it sort of complicated. I do this research and, and this writing with uh, Dr. Stone, and I was drawn to that um, you know, throughout my work uh, originally because I wanted to know what distinguished psychotic violence from violence that was associated with people that really wouldn't stand out too much at first glance from the rest of us. In order to do those evaluations more appropriately, I got more and more interested in the question of severe personality disorders. And that drew me, of course, to Dr. Stone's work. He had been a hero of mine uh, for quite a long time. I got interested in writing a book. I spoke to a colleague at work and I said, oh, you've got to talk to Michael Stone. You drew We'll be like two peas in a pod. we got to get <laughs> together. And when we did, we, you know, was sort of like a kismet of people that I think, you know, really authentically are interested in this stuff. And, um, and it, you know, and then I had the honor of writing a book with someone whose work has always meant a lot to me. Maybe Dr. Stone wants to tell you a little bit about his background.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Stone, here's what we know about you because you're pretty famous around here. We know you're a forensic psychiatrist. You've published multiple books. Over 200 articles on, uh, I think mainly personality disorders. But we know you from Most Evil on Discovery Channel. That's something uh, I'm really interested in, where you are looking at criminals and cases and, and categorizing them on your scale. So I'd love to hear about you know your background and how you created the scale.
3: I was, uh, of course, <clears throat> interested when I during my days in psychiatric institute in Columbia in uh, borderline personality disorder, which was the um, main personality disorder of the patients that came to our special unit for psychotherapy back in the 60s and 70s. But then, as I got to be known as somebody who understood personality disorders, including borderline, I would be asked occasionally by attorneys to evaluate one side or the other of some court battle, especially like in a custody case where one member of the family or the married couple was inserted borderline and attorneys to the other side uh, maybe thought that was not accurate. So I would be called in you know to make a judgment. I got interested as a result of all that, in the extremes of personality, which would then fade over beyond borderline into antisocial and psychopathy and sadism. So I got interested in the in forensic work uh, and actually uh, you know for twenty years worked in, Uh, forensic hospitals. And then I was called in the 80s to uh, Los Angeles to be at a court trial where the fellow who had killed his pregnant wife and two daughters, Jeff McDonald, initially, uh, McDonald was uh, acquitted. But there was a second trial not long after where more evidence was found that made it very clear that he was indeed the killer of his wife and, and his two little daughters. Uh, so that was what the trial was about. But in the meantime, uh, I was out there, uh, sitting, uh, maybe just 15 feet, you know, from him, with those uh, thousand-yard stare eyes that many psychopaths have, that burn a hole right through you. And I wanted the jury, at least, to be acquainted with well, where does this murder of the pregnant wife and two kids uh, fit? If you were to imagine a spectrum or a scale of awfulness. <laughs> Uh, the worst person that I thought of was um, Ian Brady in England, who with his sidekick, Myra Hindley, would he would use Myra to lure uh, children you know, to a very remote college in the moors of England, a very uh, empty area in England. And uh, then Ian would strangle the, the children uh, and record the their screams on a tape recorder, which he used as a sort of a sexual turn-on, if you can believe it. I thought, well, it can hardly be any worse than that. So I, that would be the top of whatever scale I was going to create. Mm-hmm. And the opposite end would be, uh, first of all, uh, the, like, justified homicide, which is not evil at all. But then the, well, I use that as my anchor point. That was another my, I call it uh, gradation one, uh, ultimately. And then next to that is crimes of passion. If you were making a scale of evil or awfulness or heinousness, that's on the low end. Where torture murder is very much at the high end. Right. See, when I was talking in Los Angeles at the trial, I only knew of uh, maybe half a dozen of these kinds of cases, so that uh, I just said that um, Jeffrey MacDonald fits uh, somewhere in the middle. He's not the, he didn't torture his wife and children. It wasn't at the awfulest extreme uh, of, of evil, uh, but by no means uh, was it you know justified homicide or a crime of passion. So he was like somewhere in the middle. Well, that's, and then from that point, I got very much fascinated in the whole topic and even then began working full-time at a forensic hospital that was connected with Columbia and saw mentally ill people who had done various crimes, including murder, arson, and uh, other sorts of uh, assaults and things of that sort, uh, and began to uh, shift the um, nature of my writing a little bit away from just borderline personality and other personality disorders, onto antisocial and uh, psychopaths and sadists. I've written a number of articles on uh, sadism, which then got uh, picked up by Ben Carey of the New York Times, who's a wonderful journalist. He had written about uh, My Thoughts About Evil, which is a topic that was hardly ever spoken of in psychiatry because it has to do with more with our moral judgments and our, and our reaction rather than you know a personality disorder that's in our manual uh, but the discovery channel picked it up and they uh, invited me then to go around the country uh, interviewing these various kinds of killers uh, I, I suggested ones that I thought would be interesting you know to interview and they sent letters to the person and to the warden uh, the both people had to agree you know, to be interviewed, and then they sent me around uh, Montana to California to Georgia, Texas, uh, interviewing mass murderers, uh, serial killers, and various other kinds of people committing very serious crimes. That became the basis you know, for my Anatomy of Evil book that came out in 2009, where uh, I referred you know to some of the cases that I had personally interviewed, which would include Tommy Lencel, uh, and. Uh, other cases that I had read about uh, in these true crime books along the way.
2: So, when you uh, before you did the show, had you published your scale in its entirety, or was that when the book Anatomy of Evil came out?
3: I, I think I, I only published the scale for the first time in the book in 2009. I was began I was working on it uh, and trying to make the scale where each step was a little bit uh, more awful than the step before, <laughs> uh, and the the, the first uh, as that uh, and dr Bocado has um, amplified you know my work on it and has in many ways um, found more uh, facts and, and data about some of the serial killers in particular than, than i had known but at all events the first few steps of, of maybe let's say from uh, two to uh, eight or nine are people with uh, not much uh, at all in the way of uh, psychopathic traits, they're really not psychopaths. They may be antisocial or they may be just people uh, in a state of rage, you know, committed a murder like the crime of passion, but who are not really uh, psychopaths. But then when, on the higher numbers, refer to people who would have a high score uh, on the Hair the Psychopathy Checklist developed by Robert Hare and his colleagues in Vancouver, and it's used more widely. Uh, in uh, the court and elsewhere in evaluating uh, whether a criminal is or is not uh, a psychopath. Point being, uh, if the courts were really paying attention and really res- responsible you know, to uh, what people like Dr. Bacardo and I know about the psychopathy, they would know that the likelihood of rehabilitation is very, very close to zero. Uh, and therefore, if you have uh, a murderer who's being uh, arrested, tried, and convicted, and is is not a psychopath, well, uh, given certain circumstances, that person might be capable, ultimately, after some years or whatever, of rehabilitation and release into society as a person living an acceptable life in in the among the citizenry. But if the person is clearly a psychopath, that would be a throwaway, the key phenomenon.
2: <laughs> so let me ask you something. The hair, the hair scale is pretty, or the checklist, I guess, is what it is. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that identify as psychopaths, but they don't ever commit murder. What do you think, in your opinion, puts people over the edge? Is it a variety of factors? I know a lot of these serial killers have, you know, family issues, hit on the head. Uh, what, in your guys' opinion, do you think sets these people apart?
3: Some of them come from very violent backgrounds uh, or some of them have been misused terribly where the level of animosity you know, towards the human race or to certain people is much greater than the average person would ever experience, and that may push them over the edge. Some people are really born with um, areas of the brain that are supposed to serve in our frontal lobes as a kind of a breaking system. And they have a deficiency of the braking system, if you will, so that uh, all of us at one time or another are offended by somebody. Uh, we've, we've been uh, some someone has smashed into our car <laughs> carelessly and on the road. Somebody has jipped us in a store, whatever. Uh, a relative has hurt our feelings. And we have a momentary thought, I would like to kill the other
2: <laughs> Alicia's nodding.
0: <laughs> yes, that was me. I was like, that's where I fall on the scale is driving home. I don't
2: think there's
3: anybody that's absolutely free ever of having a, a wish to kill somebody. But the people who are the psychopaths who have that braking system not functioning, they may, by golly, go ahead and do it.
4: And, you know, it's important to, because the word psychopathy is sort of, really, you know, you have to remember that when we speak, Uh, In the in the world of forensics about psychopathy, you know, many people will divide it up into what's called primary versus secondary psychopathy. When we say primary primary psychopathy, what we're really talking about is somebody where we're talking about hereditary factors, uh, you know, that may predispose somebody to these, you know, perhaps uh, boredom, sensation seeking, uh, guiltlessness. You know, gauging rewards and appropriate behavior, uh, you know, uh, uh, appropriately. And then what happens is um, that there are other people who have secondary psychopathy, which is where they're so horrendously treated, they've experienced so much adverse treatment across their lifetime that they they walk away with a sort of um, total hatred of humanity that can mimic primary psychopathy. But the idea is is that um, some people believe that you need both. There are some people who say, well, you've got to have a brain that's predisposed a certain way. But if you are treated well, you might take that brain that is sensation-seeking and kind of fearless and so forth and become something pro-social. You might be somebody who is willing to dash into fires or break up fights or battle criminals or so forth. And but but with the adverse treatment, then pushing somebody over the edge, they may then apply that fearlessness and that sensation-seeking toward something that is that is nefarious. Um, but it's unclear. Uh, it's also you know getting back to the breaking system point. It's also interesting when you think about you know the adolescent brain, and we think about some of the mass shooters and people you know school-age uh, and college-age shooters and something like <clears> that things that override that breaking system and, at an age when it's particularly vulnerable. And we also, you know, think about the role of alcohol and drugs, which figure heavily into a lot of these cases. And Dr. Sun and I examined hundreds of these cases. And, um, you know, there are these sort of factors that conspicuously crop up over and over again, you know, using drugs, using alcohol, being abused by parents, you know, parents who are drinkers, uh, parents, you know, sexually abused you. You know, exposure to you know sexual violence from a young age, and so it's very difficult, you know, to to imagine that somebody could become a, a murderous psychopath without that background. And yet, some of them do exist. Correct, Doctor Stone? We have examined some very peculiar cases of people that don't have a background that seems to make much sense.
3: Yes, I mean, I mean, uh, as you were uh, alluding to a moment ago, that Thomas himself came from a really horrifying background uh, that was. With- right. Easily conduced to becoming a secondary psychopath, but Ted Bundy, although he had a violent uh, grandfather who may even have been his father by incest, his mother carted him out you know, to Washington, uh, escaping the her father. Uh, when Tommy, when, when uh, Ted Bundy was two, then then uh, her husband Bundy became his dad more or less, uh, and. He was a working-class person who was uh, kindly and never laid a hand on him. No one, mm-hmm. in other words, spanked him. Uh, him not nobody uh, humiliated him while he was growing up. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. uh, physically abused him. Uh, and uh, and it also didn't fall on his head. A lot of right. these people have had head injuries that have lowered their um, uh, breaking ability, breaking system ability. But he didn't have any of those. So he was one of the few in my collection of serial killers who seems to be the inherited kind. And he began to murder even when he was a teenager.
4: What complicates things a little bit also is that, you know, we both, I think, have learned from experience that these people will sometimes also lie about their childhood experiences. And I think you know one of the kind of the, the, part of the essence of the kind of narcissistic, egocentric core of some of these people is, is that they they will blame external forces. Uh, you know, Ted Bundy, for instance, um, would weep talking about you know the role of pornography in causing him to become violent. But if you watch video footage of that, you'll see that in the corner of his eye, you know, with his crocodile tears, he's sort of looking at the interviewer for a reaction to see if he is, you know, pulling for some sympathy from this person. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it raises the question of whether, you know, some of those antecedents that are described are, you know, manufactured by somebody who's pulling for for sympathy. And you'd be amazed at the sub-stories that I've been given uh, by people, and then you find out from collateral information that they were entirely concocted. So, you know, what so that's it. I think that makes things a lot harder when you're looking for the background story, um, you know, for, for these people. So I'm sorry, I think you
0: were. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, you know, that's interesting, the primary and secondary, how that plays into kind of the idea of nature and nurture. Um, we also spoke about I don't know if you know anything about the Ward Weaver case um, that we had here in Portland. We talked a little bit about generational trauma and how that's kind About of that starting to come to the forefront of conversation a little bit more as far as, yeah, maybe something doesn't happen, but because this trauma is carried through the family, is that something you guys have looked at or experienced or have any thoughts on?
4: Right. And how a family that is, you know, repeatedly, you know, each member of the family has sort of been through some kind of horrendous adverse experience and it's getting passed down. And
0: Yeah. Or even if it skips that generation,
4: like some sort of, Effect environmental effect upon mm-hmm. the genetics of a person. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Doctor Stone, because I think it it gets us into the question of the the kind of evolutionary uh, kind of purpose uh, for you know some of what you know might be lingering in people who still commit these crimes. Uh, you know, like I mean, I guess it gets to the question of you know, was it adaptive? Uh, you know, once upon a time. Uh, to have some of these features, this fearlessness and this sensation seeking and this violence and so forth, particularly in the in, in males,
3: the folks that we're talking about, in addition, you know, to um, the callousness uh, or, or the lack of remorse, have some of these other qualities, that make it very difficult for them, you know, to find any kind of a, uh, a proper spot in, in society that is not offensive. I mean, that the the, the right. maybe. The, the least offensive from the, from a standpoint of violence, back to path would be uh, like Madoff. You know, somebody who uh, never laid a, a violent hand on anybody, but built billions you know, from unsuspecting uh, uh, investors, and therefore ruined the lives of, of many many people, including even causing a few over in France to commit suicide. And then I think his own son,
4: from having interviewed on um, people who experienced, you know, abuse, had parents who experienced abuse, there's alcoholism in the home, drug use, etc., that there are many people, you know, in the psychopathic spectrum, in the antisocial spectrum, and the psychopathic spectrum, who will describe having become callous and um, shut off and sort of sadistic and so forth as feeling very adaptive to them, as as feeling like um, it was necessary to become hardened that way, to survive their environment. But what's interesting is how different that is from somebody that, from cradle to grave, demonstrates um, these proclivities regardless of their environment. I think when you're talking about the intergenerational situation, I think more often than not, what we're looking at is, um, well, it's a little complicated, but because we don't have too many you know, uh, cases of someone who's a psychopath and then has a child who's a psychopath and as a child who's a, It does seem that when things pass like that through families, it's because there's been some terrible traumatic experience, and then the next generation is exposed to similar factors and so forth, so that there's a kind of a teaching of, you know, it would be adaptive to be a little cold, a little suspicious, a little shut off, a little, you know... And, you know, but but I think there are cases, for example, um, Dr. Stone, am I correct that Ted Bundy, for instance, sired a child uh, during a conjugal visit? Correct. Uh, Same thing with um, uh, uh, John Wayne Beatty. Correct. Right. And Mm -hmm. and we don't know. We don't know, you know, about their their children because they're hidden uh, from the public. uh, And as a consequence, they can't really be studied. Um yeah. but it would be you know it's an interesting thing to think about do these traits pass on uh you know genetically, but I think the answer is, is we don't know uh exact that much but but we understand that they must be hereditary because of the the presence from early you know that they basically seem to be inborn right um but um dr. stone, am I correct that um tomulin cells, who i think is one of the one of the most fascinating in a lot of ways people we wrote about. Am I correct that Tommy sells really from the time he was a young kid and he was sort of sexually disinhibited and inappropriate and so forth with his mother? I remember, he got into the shower with his mother and.
2: In bed with his grandma.
3: This case is a little bit complicated because he had meningitis, but then uh, he was shunted over by his mom to his aunt, Bonnie Walpole. She shunted him over to a pedophile, Willie Clark, who collected him for a number of years until he finally. Uh, escape when he was fourteen. That seemed to, uh, in other words, the the horrible childhood. And you could hardly imagine a worse childhood than Thomas himself's, and that set him on his path. You know, to uh, go all over, become a, a drifter, and go all over the country, uh, killing. When you see, I think it was his first murder his mid teens. In his case, the um, uh, we don't know really. I don't know you know what his father William Sells was like at all. Uh, there's hardly any information about him. Um, but the but the, even the people that were involved with him, his, his own mother and his aunt, were very uh, dismissive, uh, uh, terrible parents. They, just the sheer uh, deprivation and, and unconcern and, and molestation that, you know, that he suffered uh, w- would make him a good candidate you know, for the concept that you were mentioning about secondary psychopathy, even if he did not have too mm-hmm. much in the way. Of an inherited predisposition, you know, to callousness,
4: and and one of the one of the qualities that Tommy sells I think, um, had in common with um, Gary Ridgway, and I know somebody that you wanted to speak about, um, that I was very struck by, is that both men had a kind of a capacity for compartmentalization, for splitting, where in Tommy sells despite his blood loss and this ability to just sort of go out and just bludgeon people to death, you know, shoot people to death, cut them up, men, women, children, whole families you know, with, you know, no more compunction than you would have, you know, crushing an insect. Despite that, he was able to form, you know, a very loving, uh, appropriate relationship with a with his bail bondswoman, correct, Dr. Stone, wasn't it? She became something about a mother figure to him, right?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was charming and pleasant even during my interview with him <laughs> when he was on death row. Mm-hmm. i mentioned to many people, I think it was also in the book. But my first impulse before I, I met him was the, the television crews, uh, you know, coming up to the uh, of the prison where we were to interview him. Uh, since I had read books about him, I thought, well, I feel like killing this guy. <laughs> so <laughs> then when my first, when I, I you know, you do... Interviews and death row through telephone, you know, because of three inches of glass between you and the and the uh, the inmate. So I said, "Well, Tommy, um, uh, I guess I got these three inches of glass, so I don't kill you and you don't kill me." And he says, "You got that, rat?" Right? <laughs> 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 and then you and have a certain humor about him. And then toward the end, uh, he said, "I asked him about this remorse." He says, "Well." Looking back, I I do feel a a, a little bit of remorse, but if I felt full remorse, I'd have to kill myself. That was kind of an insight for this not very bright fellow uh, who realized that he'd done terrible things, and and if he really felt the kind of compassion that people are supposed to be, (laughs) uh, that he'd have to to kill himself rather than the state doing it.
4: (laughs) It's interesting, you know, the way that people like that can respond. To somebody, you know, because you know, with this kind of splitting, which is an important mechanism, I think, to understand when we talk about Gary Ridgway. I mean, Gary Ridgway, who was, you know, while th- during he had three marriages, he had one marriage during which he committed virtually no murder because he he felt that you know he was with a very loving woman. Uh, he had only one. three, mm-hmm. right? The last one, um, but all throughout, I mean, he was committing, you know, potentially as many as seventy. Uh, murders of prostitutes, and, and also had a sort of a double life as a as a, as a very religious uh, person who, you right. know, portrayed himself so, as so devout that he was weeping when reading the Bible and and so yeah. forth, and and then would sometimes in the, the same period would be going out killing prostitutes and, and runaways, and um, you know, and I, I think you know we really have to sort of get into that topic of that the way that people can compartmentalize that way to really I I think get into. Personality disorder and that kind of core that is present in some of these people that makes it possible to do some of these heinous things and then go on and have a seemingly normal life. So also, John Wayne Gacy and David Parker Ray and some others had these double lives, right, Doctor Stone?
3: Yes, I mean mm-hmm. another thing that I mentioned you know, to uh, Tommy when I interviewed him is that I thought mm-hmm. that he, of course, he, he killed men and babies as well as women, but mostly women, uh, mm-hmm. and. I said, Tommy, it seems to me like uh, when I think about you know your history, it was as though you were, uh, in, a, in, a, in a psychological sort of a way, you were killing your mother over and over again. And there he got, got a little testy with me, and he said, anyone touch a hair of her head, I'll kill him in a minute. In other words, they just, he immediately right. so just loved his mother. Uh, the, you, you, the, the idea of wanting to kill his mother, farthest thing from his mind, even though, from as you and I, as, as in the psychological field, we know damn well he was killing his mother over and over, as was even more so in a way, uh, uh, Ridgeway, because Ridgeway had this beautiful, seductive, but uh, uh, absurd mother, you know, who would make him stand naked in front of his brothers if he wet his bed. He, he was enuretic for quite a while, which shamed him. He had uh, a double attitude about you know he would go around uh, wanting to be with one woman after the other, but he, at the same time he was killing his mother really over and over, <laughs> and over and over.
4: And and Ridgway you know has openly said and 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 by the way I think it's important to point out uh, one very interesting thing that Tommy Linceles and Gary Ridgway have in common is that both of them have you know have been determined to have IQs in the low 80s uh, in right. sort of had kind a of borderline IQ. I think that is important to, to bear that in mind. They have that
1: yep. singularity.
4: But but um but but in the case of Ridgway, Ridgway has openly said that he was very confused growing up because he found himself erotically attracted to his mother while also loathing her. So he would describe, for instance, that when he wet his bed, his mother would take him, you know, and wash him in you know, in his private areas and so forth, and he was disturbed at how much he was enjoying that, uh, at the same time that he was mortified you see the same confusion of the mother as an erotic object versus an object of hatred in, in time of themselves, who Eddie was thrown out of the house originally because he yeah. tried to get into the shower with his mother uh you know when she was nude and that sort of aroused him he later when there was an attempt at a reconciliation he tried to get into bed with his grandmother and um he was thrown out of the house again so it's a it's a kind of an interesting thing that confusion and we see it to such an extreme uh for example in if you remember from the book we we sort of <laughs> we say that we feel that the the very top of category 22 the worst of the worst you know the the creme de la creme I suppose he was of uh, what would be um David Parker Ray. And I think it's incontrovertibly uh you know about as bad as it gets and um you know we you'll see it you'll see in that case that that he would have a a woman that he idealized that he would have slaves, people they were picking up and turning into slaves, call a mistress. And she would be treated like a, a sort of a perfect golden, you know, and whereas this other person was being subjected to the most heinous, imaginable, sadistic torture. And I remember I read in, a, in one of the biographies that I was very struck by it, was that there was one witness, she said, one survivor who said that Ray sat her down and said, you're such a nice woman. If I had known that you were that kind of a woman, I would have never brought you here and done these things to you. So, so I think we, we really have to understand and grasp that concept of splitting. And I think it's, it's also present in the way we react to these, to these killers and, and the, 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 the sort of um, walking away from them confused about why we can like them. And at the same time that we sort of want them dead.
2: I'd love to go back to your new book. So previously we talked about Dr. Stone introducing his scale in The Anatomy of, of Evil. And now you have this new book, The New Evil Out, revisiting the scale and elaborating on it. And what I found really interesting is how much Gary Ridgway and Tommy Lynn Cells may have in common, yet they're so many points away from each other on the scale. So I know Tommy Lynn Cells is a 22. And am I correct that Gary Ridgway falls at Category 18?
4: Yes, mm-hmm. I, I think eighteen would be an excellent, an 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 excellent, an astute uh, placement of him. Yes, and and the reason is yes. that you need a little bit of non-protracted torture, in addition to repeat homicide, to be in category eighteen. And what we see in Ridgeway, sort of like we see in Ted Bundy, is what we would call non-protracted torture. You know, strangling, mm-hmm. strangulating someone with a ligature, uh, so forth. Um, you know, in the case of Bundy, we saw some some biting and some kind of cruel, uh, you know, treatment like that. With with cells, there was the use of methods of of murder that really led to a kind of a sadistically prolonged cruel death. I mean, for example, uh, I remember Dr. Stone's interview very intimately. I I watched it uh, a couple of times when I was writing, and I remember um, that that he said to him. Why did you kill the children? You know, I can understand you, you know, going in and killing a mother. Why did you kill the children? He said, well, I I, I didn't want them to go through the pain, you know, of being without their parents. And so Dr. Stone said to him, "Well, well, then why didn't you kill them with a gun? Why did you have to beat them with a baseball bat or something like that, whatever? And he said... Well, I don't like guns. They're dangerous.
2: <laughs> I saw that I heard that,
4: I heard that. <laughs> right. you remember that, that ridiculous answer that you, yeah. um but 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 there was definitely the sadistic prolongation of um and yeah. you know, and just the sheer butchery um which became so expansive that it that it ultimately came to encompass entire families, um which I think had more than a hint of envy uh, in it. Uh, of of people who had intact intact families and loving families, um, but um, but to, but with Ridgway, what you're seeing is just repeat murder. With you know you don't have that prolongation. Death was fairly expedient, and um, and that most of this kind of sexual gratification was coming from you know that sort of quick the quick killing and then the necrophilic
3: necrophilic act. You're pointing out something that's important on, on both sides of, of the of the divide here. Tommy, in effect, was killing uh, the, the good mom that he, he didn't really have, uh, whereas uh, Ridgeway was uh, killing the whore mother that he he had a, a mother who was both an, a conventional woman, you know, with her family, and and he himself worked 30 years at this paint job that he had. He was and he would get under the neighbor's. Car, you know, to uh, he was very good mechanically, despite his modest IQ, and would be very neighborly and fix things. But the, the the part of him that, uh, it, and unconsciously was aware of the mother as as being whorish, you know, with the uh, seductiveness that she uh, how she mm-hmm. behaved toward him. But that's what led him to not so much go after nice moms and nice families like like cells, but rather prostitutes one after the other, all the way up to seventy.
4: It's kind of interesting because it, you know, the way that you see these patterns that I I think have some real use in terms of understanding motivations and patterns and habits in people that commit crime similarly. And I, I think, you know, as the the scale sort of gets more and more popular and penetrates the general public, I think you're you're starting to see more people getting interested in research where these get turned into distinct profiles um, yeah. that allow us to have insight and um, Uh, Michael and I have been working, for example, with Ann Burgess. Uh, You may know uh, they based the character on Mindhunter on uh, Netflix uh, on her. We've been working with her to expand these categories, for instance, to look at motivations for acts like dismemberment and mutilation, which, as you probably remember from the book, are complicated because they can be driven by all the same uh, distinct motivations we see throughout the scale. you know, it's because when people hear about something as heinous as that, they, they immediately say, "You must be high on the scale," but that's not necessarily true. Uh, we we see dismemberment and mutilation in all kinds of cases, from you know, yeah, someone who has an explosion of rage and has no psychopathic features, to someone who is doing it just to get rid of a body, they've, someone they've impulsively killed, to cannibalism, to keeping body parts for trophies for sexual reasons. So you know, so it's sort of becoming. A basis for a lot of really interesting, a lot of really interesting research, I think. And-
2: you said something earlier. I'd love to circle back to, and that is uh, how Gary Ridgway and Tommy Linsells both kind of were in the lower end of intelligence. And I find it interesting looking at Ridgway's case. I-, I often feel like maybe he's underestimated because he spent a lot of time ruining the crime scenes, putting other people's DNA there, uh, you know, posing posing these corpses to kind of allude to more than there was for the police and, and getting them confused. What do you think about that? Have you guys thought thought anything that maybe he is more intelligent than people claim?
3: Well, you know, it's hard, even with respect to Tommy themselves, who has a score of 82, is, is like borderline, you know, subnormal intelligence, but he has so little schooling and, and no one was reading him bedtime stories. And they didn't have, you know, ordinary people, the lucky people, uh, build up a huge vocabulary by the time they're three from all of the three million words that they've heard uh, from their folks and other people in those first few years. Whereas people often in poverty backgrounds, they hear very few words, they have much more meager vocabulary. Uh, and so that when they take an IQ test, they come out. Uh, not so well, but it may be that uh, right. not genetically the uh, problem so much as an environmental problem that they weren't given the advantages that ordinary uh, children are. From what we know of Ridgeway, he wasn't brutalized uh, early in, in the, and neglected in the way that uh, Tommy themselves was, so he may be more uh, authentically uh, uh, disadvantaged from the standpoint of intelligence. He had a brother. I think by a different uh, father, who had became a physicist. So, the chances are there
2: wow the disparity
3: between the IQ of him and his brother were quite quite large. The adaptive mechanisms that you could uh, summon you know, to get through life in a more socially appropriate way are more limited than in somebody who's very bright. That is not to say that there aren't some serial killers like uh, Larry Binnicker, who has a very high IQ of 138. So that. Uh, you, you can't say that IQ protects one from doing heinous things, but the uh, the more the higher the IQ, the, probably the greater likelihood that you could end up uh, making an adaptive uh, uh, solution, you know, to life's problems and, and get a good job and things like that than somebody you know who was disadvantaged.
4: It's important to remember, and I, you know, and as a psychologist, I've had to do a lot of a lot of IQ testing in my day. And I can tell you that, you know, what they're sort of leaving out when you hear the IQ of someone like this is they're not telling you whether the IQ was valid because it would have to show um, a a reasonable um, distinction between the visual and verbal skills. And what happens Mm -hmm. is that if there's a wide enough disparity between those skills, we wouldn't even consider the IQ valid. I think what you see in a lot of these people is that there's probably a scatter of scores where they were not particularly, just like Dr. Snow was saying, they're not particularly verbally adept. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, I participated in some research at a a hospital where we we found that people who had lower verbal IQs or lower verbal ability were more likely to be explosive and full of rage because they can't get their feelings out. They can't talk down their their rage. Um, and, And it's kind of interesting that you know, what we may be seeing is that in in terms of visual ability, you know, if we think of the person almost like a with an incredible, you know, sort of like visual of capacity, we think of them almost like an like a tiger or something, you know, that has this ability to, to see, but, but no ability to talk, you know, it's a, uh, you, you see somebody with this pure visual strength, then it will, it will bring the IQ down and they'll wind up looking like a, a very unintelligent person. Um, but, I, but I think that, that in both cases, you actually saw some removal of evidence and so forth. Tomulant cells, for instance, at um, uh, the last crime where he cut the, the the sleeping girl's throat while the you know the other girl was in the same room and so forth. After that, he he tried to clean it up. You know, he was walking. in fact when I think when the police found him, he was walking away with the screen that he had removed from the window, uh, and um, was concerned about fingerprints. And certainly, Gary Ridgway went much further in terms of concealing. If I remember, he even did things like bring a body across state lines and you know sort of move bodies around and so forth, so that police would be confused about what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I would be very surprised if Gary Ridgway did not learn a lot of that stuff about the police techniques and so forth from from reading about or viewing things about other other killers and police techniques. I mean Edmund Kemper, for instance, has spoken very another very intelligent person yeah. has spoken mm-hmm. very eloquently about how he learned a lot of this stuff from watching television, talking to cops and reading magazines. And um, so we don't know how much Ridgeway was just sort of mimicking or parroting techniques and things that he learned. We just don't know because it's an unsophisticated IQ test to just say this is somebody's IQ. Uh, we need the details.
0: So before we let you guys go, we know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Um, real quick, each of you, the most unsettling person, you said you had to interview a lot of people to make your books the most unsettling psychopath yeah. that you encountered?
4: Who, who, who do we find to be the most horrendous? Yes. The yeah, hour?
0: or just like in your interactions that really kind of made the hair stand oh, up Lord. on the back here. <laughs> Top person, God, just I the name.
1: Who,
4: who, who gets that to be the most horrendous <laughs> of, the, of the horrendous? Well,
3: well, well I think David Park's well, is a standard mm. because he did, uh, he killed... Uh, he tortured and killed more people, more women. And, uh, in other words, there's there's a few people like David Ray, uh, John Ray Weber in Wisconsin. Oh, Lord, did yes, horrendous, terrible things you know to his sister-in-law and uh, another woman, uh, you know, butchering them and, and, and while they were still alive and, and you know, unspeakable things that he did. But uh, he had very few victims, <laughs> whereas David Parker Ray. Really made a study of it. He was like a professional sadistic, sadistic torturer. In addition to being a park ranger and, and an artist and everything else he could do, he was he had many gifts. But one of <laughs> but the worst of them was, uh, of course, alluring women you know to the toy box, uh, where he would then hoist them up and, and, and so they would be powerless, read them this many many page long uh, 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 document that he of all the horrible things that were about to happen to them uh, is it's unimaginable.
4: Well, because, you know, it, it became clear to me, you know, even with all the, the training I had had prior to getting into crime as a subject, uh, that what you really need is a confluence of three factors. I mean, to really be what we would call evil, to do evil things, the, 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 the most evil in the, the, the crime will involve... Psychopathy, sadism, and I think a kind of a mechanical detachment from reality. That's a point Dr. Stone has made over the years, and I think is a great insight. And you see all of that in David Crockeray. You see the, the the psychopathy, you know, across his life we see an individual who had a relentless sexual appetite that that oddly didn't burn out you know didn't burn out even when he was older and and then we had this extreme degree of sadism beyond anything i have ever seen before and then finally you know there was this ability to view people almost as if they were machinery or an object where he had an intellectual curiosity about what happens if i do this to this part of the body what happens if and you see that in the in the category 22 people, I made a point of saying in part one of the book there that I was struck by that every case we picked, just randomly picked to write about, with the exception of tomulant cells or the lower IQ, they were all collectors. They were all people who had an intense intellectual curiosity. Robert Berdella, for instance, treated bodies like they were like frogs on a dissection table. No, who was interested in things like, what happens if I give put drano in this individual's eyes? What happens if I put caulk into their ears? What happens if I tie this piano wire around their hands, you know? And um we see Gary Heidnick was certainly a collector. First of all, he collected yes. paper money and coins and things like that, but he also collected people. And um Robert Bordello ran an antique shop where he sold his collectibles. John Wayne Gacy was a collector of both people and artwork and so so and and I have to tell you that if I could make a prediction, I think when we look into this, we are going to find that IQ is related to the, the intellectual stimulation and the mechanical detachment that we see in people at the highest end of the, the scale. I'm interested in that question of whether that takes a kind of a combination of intelligence, schizoid detachment, and kind of a psychopathic, sadistic quality. And you may need the, the need for intellectual stimulation to do some of that stuff. Um, which seems to me to be more important than the sexual aspect of these people. So but um, I hope this has been insightful and interesting to you guys.
2: Yeah, it absolutely has. And I know it's uh, dark information, but it's been a delight to have you on with us today. So I, I really appreciate you spending time with us.
4: So just so all your listeners know, the book is called The New Evil, Understanding the Emergence of Modern Violent Crime. It was put out by Prometheus Books uh, in March of this year and, um, it's doing quite well. And, uh, you know, we hope that more and more people will discover it and, and, um, you know, take an interest in our, in our insights.
2: Absolutely. I can vouch for it. It was really good. You guys obviously are academics, but it is written in a way that's going to be interesting to everybody. I, I thought it was great.
4: Well, I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Have a, have a great day.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much.
2: The title of Dr. Bricado and Dr. Stone's new book is The New Evil, Understanding the Emergence of Modern Violent Crime. We will have a link up on our website so that you can go purchase the book on Amazon. There are multiple formats of the book, whether you're a listener, digital reader, or old school page turner, so you must check it out. (music) I'll be fine. They're fine. We're fine. I'm Everyone's fine. fine. Okay, we're, we're fine. fine. <laughs> so hard work. Do some
0: <laughs> for your big beautiful lips. They're not big. They're medium. <gasps> they're still beautiful. Thanks. Was that a kiss? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long while. You must always say thank you after a kiss, right? <laughs> Thanks.
2: Right. So I,
4: I who had a relentless sexual appetite that that oddly didn't burn out, you know, didn't burn out even when he was older.
2: Lucky. The order?
0: No, I'm just thinking. Oh. Just let me oh, think. Okay. Fucking let me think. I know it's not that common, but like just let me think.
2: Everyone seems a little edgy today. Okay. Would you like to write it down? No. One take season. <laughs>
0: That's not happening today. <laughs> visit our website <clears throat> sorry about that <laughs> mama mia no it's the heat and then the season is changing and the clouds and the temperature changing like i just have sinus stuff running down my throat constantly also you can find me on tinder bumble and okay <laughs> no
2: it's great because you can talk
0: to anyone without having to swipe on them
2: it's just like life, <laughs> yeah, real life <laughs>
0: coupon codes, and information about your hosts. Fuck. Be sure to check out our website. This feels like when you're ch- setting your voicemail and like, I cannot set a voicemail. for I do it in another room by myself. Hi, I don't know my name because people are looking at me and this feels weird. For all sorts of additional information, including coupon codes, fucking fuck. Don't tell me to write it down because that's what you're about to do and I don't want to. Be sure to check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases.
2: hmm I right know. Can you take that deep sigh again, please?
0: <laughs> Fine, then write it down. Okay. Review us. Review, <laughs> Review us on Review iTunes or wherever iTunes. you
2: listen to us. Review us. Oh, My, my existence is meaningless. I know.
0: That's a derogatory term.
2: I know. That's why I said it like that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we met girls in a cab who ended up going with us. They were so drunk, and one spit on my face and made me dance, and I don't like touching strangers. Fuck yeah! Fuck yeah!
0: Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at KYFIFER.com.